Okay, question 20. If you don't have a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith in the, stand, in the two catechisms, then uh, you can use the hymnal. And we're going to be on page 870 of the hymnal to begin with. <clears throat> and to set a little context for where we are, we know from question 15 that Adam and Eve sinned. And Adam was the representative of all mankind. He received the covenant of works as the representative of all mankind. And his violation, his violation, is our violation because he was our representative. That's from question 16. Therefore, we all fell into sin and misery. And that's question 17. And there's a lot more coming in. I'll just we'll hold up here for a minute. <clears throat> All right, so <clears throat> because Adam and Eve sinned, Adam was our representative head, we all fell into sin and misery, questions 15, 16, and 17. As a consequence, we have the guilt of Adam's first sin, we have the want or the lack of righteousness and a corruption of our whole nature. And those three things, guilt, want, or lack, and corruption, that's original sin. That's question 18. <clears throat> and then, so because of that, we lost communion with God. We're under His wrath and curse. We face misery and death and hell. Question 19. The end? No. Because God acted. But God. And that brings us to question 20. So, <clears throat> I've been uh, coughing quite a bit. So, will someone read question 20, the question and the answer for us? Okay, thanks, Jonathan. Okay. There is a lot to unpack in this question. And we could spend weeks... On this question alone, I will spend about 45 minutes today on this question, and perhaps John will want to pick up uh, some, some more next week when he's back. Remember in grammar school, when we would read a story or read the question, we'd ask some questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? Who, what, when, where, why, how, where? Okay, so let's look at that. In this question, who, God... Why? Out of his mere good pleasure. When? From all eternity. We'll come back to that. How? Did enter into a covenant of grace. What? What did he do? To deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation. And where? at the cross, by a Redeemer, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. We're going to talk about each one of these things in turn. Those questions are on page 870. Our hymnal does not include the larger catechism, 
We have the Confession of Faith in the Shorter Catechism, and the Shorter Catechism was set up as the Children's Catechism in the 1600s. The Larger Catechism was for adults. I want to flip over to question 30 in the Larger Catechism because it is the parallel, <clears throat> parallel question. And it says, Doth God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? The answer, God doth not leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works, but of his mere love and mercy delivereth his elect out of it and bringeth them into an estate of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. So parallel ideas there. And who, again, in question 30, God, why? Out of his mere love and mercy, how? The second covenant, the covenant of grace. And to do what? To deliver his elect out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation. So we have the parallel ideas there. <clears throat> so we know that question 20 begins God. So let's step back and look at the distinction between the creator and the cre creature. And if you have any questions, go ahead and just, throw, just blurt it out and ask a question. I'll try to give an answer. Let's look at the distinction between the creator and the creature. We were created by God and we know that we owe obedience to the creature, or to the Creator. Someone read Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, please. Okay, so Adam and Eve were presented a choice, obey or die. We know that that was the covenant of works, total obedience. The Creator owes nothing to the creature. That's fundamental to Christianity. We must obey God. He owes nothing to us. We owe him obedience by the fact that we are the creature and he is the creator. <clears throat> so, therefore, any and all blessings or any and all rewards that come from God can come only by grace or condescension on God's part. We owe him obedience, obey or die. And that's where questions 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 left us in the sin of misery or in the state of misery and death. But God acted. So any blessings or rewards that come from God, he does not owe us anything. He does not need anything from us. That's an entire other class we could do. But it comes by grace or condescension on God's part. Flip in your hymnals if that's what you're using for the confession to page 852. I want to look at what the chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we're going to look at a couple of paragraphs there. Because the Reformed have always gone to great lengths to maintain 
to uphold and defend the distinction between the creator and the creature. Our obligation to obey or die. Chapter 7, it's on page 852 of your hymnal, if that's what you're using. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he, he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. <clears throat> Paragraph 2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam, and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. It goes back to Genesis chapter 2 that uh, we just read, that obey or die. <clears throat> Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, I mean, we disobeyed, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. So how does man sin? Well, simply to disobey God. But then look at our culture around us. Not only... Does our culture widely disobey God? They don't call it sin. They don't believe in sin. They may not believe in any sort of God. And finally, they deny our creaturehood, our creatureliness, the fact that we are creatures of a sovereign God. And mankind considers himself independent of God. Is it a sin for some Christians to assert that man has a free will that is free to such an extent that man can determine his destiny apart from God? There are a lot of Christians that believe we have free will. Free we, we and we do have free will. We'll come back to that in in the weeks ahead. We do have free will. We're captive to our nature. But there are Christians who believe that man has free will to the extent that man alone determines his destiny. Is that a sin? Is that operating apart from God? That's a good question for coffee and questions next summer with John. <clears throat> we'll get to free will, which we certainly have, but not in the sense that some Christians believe that we have. So, Westminster Confession and the Catechisms and Reformed Churches, the Continental Reformed Churches with their creeds and confessions, the Heidelberg and um, the other ones, they guard against the impiety of man's independence from God. And we looked at that in the Confession of Faith, chapter 7. The distance between God and the creature is so great it goes on, but by some voluntary 
condescension on God's part. God does not owe us anything. He gave us obey or die. We disobeyed. We have died spiritually into the state of sin and misery and death. But for some voluntary condescension on God's part. So what we begin to see here is all of God's dealings with man are sovereign and gracious. Sovereign because he is the creator, we are the creature. And gracious because the distance is so far, the nature is so distinct that it's only because of God's voluntary condescension, his grace, that we can even have a hope of salvation. This voluntary, it's it's voluntary on God's part. It's imposed by the will of God, not at all by man. And I want to look quickly and see if this says what I think it does. I'm going to turn, now before I make you turn there, I'm going to make sure it says what I think it does. Okay, Isaiah chapter 40, verses uh, 13 through 17. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? Who directs the Spirit of God? Who has taught God? That's what Isaiah is asking. With whom does he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scale. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. Nobody counsels God. God does not need anything from us. God does not owe us anything. Any reward, any benefit we receive from God is by grace, by His will alone. And Isaiah reaffirms there, God has no counselors. God has no advisors. God acts of His own sovereign will. I'm going to flip over to Acts and make sure this says what I think it says. Yeah, Acts 17, verse 25. I'll start in verse 24. Well, I'll start, I'll start there. Paul is uh, at the Areopagus. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all, breath, and all, he gives all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and deter- determine their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. It goes on. 
But the point there is Paul is saying God does not need anything from man. God is sovereign. We are not. God is creator. We are creature. We must obey and we have failed. So the benefits from any act of God's condescension, any act of God's grace, it benefits only the creature, not the creator. God does not derive benefit from us, from saving us, from acting in our lives. It's by his will and good pleasure. All right, so back to question 20 of the Shorter Catechism. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God acting alone. God having out of his mere good pleasure, or as it says in verse in the in catechism, the larger catechism, question thirty, out of his mere love and mercy. God's good pleasure, God's love, God's mercy. That's why he's acting here. Not because of anything we do, not because of anything, any benefit God derives from us. It's merely because God willed to do so for his good pleasure, because of his love, because of his mercy. So, regarding the covenant of works, which we read about back in chapter 7 of the Confession of Faith. If Adam had obeyed, God surely would have given him great reward of some sort, but not because Adam demanded it, not because Adam had any claim against God, but because God had willed it. Let's turn over to Luke 17.10. And is that what I want? Oh, Luke, 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 Luke. I'll start in verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, this is Jesus talking. And he gives some examples. Um... If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and planted by the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, would say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk? And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, when, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. So even when a man says, I have done all the will of God, he would still be an unprofitable servant, having done only what it was his duty to do. God is creator. God is sovereign. We are not. We are the creature. 
We owe obedience. Our duty is obedience. If we could perfectly obey the law of God, the will of God, it's our duty to do so. And what does God owe us? Nothing. But because of his good pleasure, his love, his mercy, he has acted to bring us into relationship with him, to restore us out of a state of sin and misery and death into a state of eternal life. Now, the question 20 goes on. God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life from all eternity. We have finite minds. We can't comprehend eternity past. We vaguely comprehend eternity forward. But God, from all eternity... Someone read... um, Well, I'm going to start with John 1.29 and John 1.36. Can someone pick those up and read them? John 1.29 and John 1.36. John 1.29. Okay. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay. The Lamb of God. All right. 1.36. Okay, so John has called him twice there, the Lamb of God. And then let's turn over to Revelation 13, 8 and get another description by John. Revelation 13, 8. The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away sins. The Lamb of God. The Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Peter and Paul have some things to say about this from all eternity. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. If someone would read that for us, please. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. The Lamb foreordained before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 4. We'll hear what Paul says. Ephesians 1 4. Thank you. All right. Before the foundation of the world, or as question 20 puts it, from all eternity. Can we comprehend the planning of God from eternity past, before the creation, that he would redeem a people for himself? It's what the Bible teaches. Our finite minds cannot fully comprehend that. 
because God is sovereign and we are not. God is the creator, we are the creature. God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life. I'm going to flip back over. You don't have it in your hymnal there, but if you do have a copy of the Confession, the larger catechism, question 13. What hath God especially decreed concerning angels and men? God, by an eternal and immutable, meaning unchangeable decree, out of his mere love for the praise of his glorious name, to be manifested in due time, hath elected some angels to glory, and in Christ hath chosen some men to eternal life, and the means thereof, and also according to his sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth favor as he pleaseth, hath passed by and foreordained the rest to dishonor and wrath, to be for their sin uh, inflicted, for their sin inflicted to the praise of the glory of his justice. So a lot of stuff in there. God's eternal, unchangeable decree before the foundation of the world. Out of his mere love, for the praise of his glorious grace. Love, grace. Um, His mere good pleasure. To be manifested in due time. This was established before the foundation of the world. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Foreordained before the foundation of the world. To be manifest in due time. The coming of Christ. Hath elected some angels to glory. And hath chosen some men to eternal life. As question 20 puts it. Elected some to everlasting life. You can turn in your confession of faith there in the hymnal to chapter 3. This is of God's eternal decree. We touched on some of this uh, earlier in the catechism. But it starts off, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. John talked about that, talking about providence and the decrees of God in a previous question. Down in uh, paragraph 2, Yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions? Again, it goes back to the sovereignty of God. God needs no counselors. God needs nothing from us. God acts in accordance with his own sovereign will from eternity past to elect some for eternal life not because he saw not because of anything we do didn't look down the tunnels of history and see oh uh, Jonathan's going to choose for Jesus so I'll save him no he called us and he he ordained it and called us and and establishes the means by which we are called by Paragraph 3, chapter 3, paragraph 3. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. Um, 
That, that, that paragraph is profound. By the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. Even the fall of man and the fall of angels was under God's decree of predestination. These angels and men, thus predestined and foreordained, are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or diminished. John thirteen eighteen. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen. That's what Jesus says. I know whom I have chosen. God says, Jacob I have loved. Esau I have hated. Our salvation is wholly and completely in the hands of God. Chapter, uh, paragraph, chapter 3, paragraph 5. Those of mankind that are predestinated unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel of his good pleasure, of the good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, we don't have anything to do with it, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature, as conditions are causing moving them thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace. God is truly sovereign, and our eternal destiny is in his hands. This should aim us towards a state of humility because it reminds us there is nothing in us that is the reason for election. Okay. So back to question 20. Elected some to everlasting life. And we know it's nothing to do with us. Did enter into a covenant of grace. Now, one time I had, uh, I really need a few weeks, but I only had one Sunday school to go through the covenants. Maybe it was two weeks to go through the covenant of, uh, the co covenant theology. And we started with the covenant of works. But in the covenant of grace picks up at Genesis 3.15 and covers to the rest of the Bible. The covenant of works, obey or die. The covenant of grace, God's acts to redeem a people unto himself. Okay, so this covenant of grace. <clears throat> we remember in question 12, a couple months ago, what special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? I mean, what did God do after man was created? When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life also called the Covenant of Works, the writers of Westminster, the divines, the, the ministers, they went back and forth calling it a Covenant of Works or Covenant of Life. Uh, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Okay, so life was promised under, upon condition of perfect and perpetual obedience. But that's what Adam owed to God anyway. But God, because it was gracious, says obey or die. So Adam owed that to him. The fall, as we've studied, rendered man totally unable to meet the conditions of that covenant. 
and puts us into a state of sin and misery and death. So God mercifully instituted a new covenant called the covenant of grace. And we could unpack this over a series of weeks because after Genesis 3.15, look at all the covenants and they're all just various administrations of the covenant of grace. There was a covenant with Noah. There was a covenant with David. There was a covenant with Abraham. There was a covenant with Moses. There's a new covenant. Jeremiah speaks of a new covenant. And Jesus, as we hear every week in communion, this is the covenant in my blood. Those are all various administrations of the covenant of grace. We really need several weeks to go over that. Both covenants, covenant of works, obey or die, covenant of grace, God provides the Messiah who perfectly obeys, perfectly lives, perfectly obeys for us, lives a perfect life for us, suffers the death we deserve, and is raised to glory as a surety, as a promise that we will be raised to glory one day. Both covenants were of grace. But the second one deserves to be called covenant of grace because God himself provides the work to meet the conditions that are required. Obedience, even our faith as a gift. All right, so about the covenant of grace. It's sovereignly imposed by God. God did not consult man. He consulted only himself. Man did not in any way set the terms. When you seek a new job, sometimes you have an ability to uh, negotiate the terms and conditions of your employment. If you're represented by a labor union, you have a bargaining agent that negotiates the terms and conditions of employment. When you want to buy a house, you can negotiate the terms and conditions of the sale. If you want to lease property, you can negotiate the terms and conditions. We had no say in the terms and conditions of the covenant of works or the covenant of grace. We owe God obedience. We failed. We fell into the sin of, of the state of sin and misery and death. So God, acting alone, institutes the covenant of grace. <clears throat> Why? to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. So the covenant of grace, it's sovereignly imposed by God. Now, the covenant wasn't agree there was an agreement among persons, but they are the persons of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's this look like? Well, the Father agreed to give the Son. And there's some verses we can look, but we're going to run out of time. The Father agreed to give the Son. Christ agreed to give His life as a ransom. And the Holy Spirit agreed to make actual application of this redemption to those whom the Father had chosen. I've got some verses there. We're going to run out of time. That is sometimes called the covenant of redemption. In eternity past. When God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit set forth a plan of salvation. 
So this covenant of grace, it's sovereignly imposed by God without our input. It's an agreement among the persons of the Trinity. And it's fulfilled by the work of God for us in Christ. Christ perfectly obeyed God for us. He died for us and was raised to glory for us. This covenant of grace, it's fulfilled by the work of God for us in Christ and in us by the Holy Spirit who gives us faith. Faith is a gift. And the question finishes up. Did enter, well, God having out of his mere good pleasure for all eternity, from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. That will launch us into next week, unless John wants to come back and do some more on this. Question 21, who's the redeemer, who is the redeemer of God's elect? So there's a flow. We set the context in the beginning. We sinned. In Adam, we have original sin. <clears throat> we fell into a state of sin and misery and death. And here it's the sovereign act of our sovereign creator to, to save his elect out of the estate of sin and misery and death by the work of a redeemer. We'll pick that up next week. And there's a whole lot more we could go into. We're almost out of time. Um, election, we could spend a whole other lesson on that. Covenants, we could spend a, couple, a month or two on covenants. Um, the sovereignty of God. All of this ties in deep, deep stuff here. And this is the children's catechism, not the co contemporary children's catechism. This was the mid-1600s children's catechism. It's deep. It's profound. And it's scriptural. Now, those of you who don't have your own copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, you ought to get one. Because this is just a random page. This is the teaching of the confession, maybe a third of the page. And these are all scriptural references, at least two-thirds of the page. Most of the Confession of Faith and the Catechisms picks up the language of the Bible. It was written in the 1640s, so they were using the authorized version, or what we know as King James Version. Um, and it is solid, the Confession. So if you don't have one, look for one. My last church, we used to, when people finished the new member class, we gave them a copy of the Confession and Catechisms. I wish we could do that here. Budget probably doesn't support that quite yet. But... If you don't have one, get a copy. And there are several, I have several reading plans to take you through it, and the whole thing in a month or the whole thing in a year. Um, and just learn our theology, learn our faith, because it is deep and it is profound, and it is biblical, scriptural, through and through. All right, any questions? There's more we can talk about. What is a covenant? It's a bond in blood. But, you know, there's so much we can talk about. We don't have time. It is 10 o'clock. That's the time we're supposed to quit. <laughs> John would go for another 10 or 15 minutes. But, right, so in Arminianism, it is man must make the choice of faith. Paul tells us we were dead in our sins. Dead 
not sick, dead. Well, the Arminian views us as mostly we are sick. We still have enough goodness in us that we can choose faith. And that's widespread through Christianity. Um, All we can do is, is continue teaching the profound truth that God is sovereign and we are not. God is creator. We are creature. God is sovereign in our salvation, not us. And all we can do is continue to teach that, to preach that, to pray for those that, that you know, our families and loved ones who are caught up in, in churches that, that have that view of salvation. You know, they're obviously, they are Christian brothers, but they have a view of a not quite fully sovereign God, and they don't really understand the implications of that. But God did not send Jesus, I mean, the full implication of that theology is God sends Jesus to die on the cross, and then he sits back, as R.C. Sproul said, wringing his hand, man, I hope someone believes. I just hope someone believes. I did all this. I hope someone believes. It's not that. God is sovereign. We are not. And that sovereignty extends to every aspect. That's, I love uh, the teachings of providence, that God is sovereign to every aspect, all actions of, his, of all his creatures. It's all within the purview of God's sovereignty. All we can do for those who are caught up in Arminianism is continue to teach and preach the biblical truths and proclaim the sovereignty of God and pray for them. Yeah. So then they're... they're right. Yeah, and, the, and then that starts them down to the road to universalism. Well, how can a loving, good God allow anyone to go to hell? Well, because we all deserve hell. End of story. Period. We all deserve hell, but God, out of his mere good pleasure, out of his mere love and mercy, before the foundation of the world, foreordained some to eternal life through a redeemer. So we all deserve hell, period. God was gracious to some for reasons that we cannot question and it has nothing to do with us. We cannot sit here in this church and say, well, we are better than those guys down the street. We're not. We have a deeper, richer, more profound theology, a more biblical theology. Churches around here that we profoundly disagree with are still Christians, most of of them. You know, there's some churches that, as Paul says, are synagogues of Satan. Um, But it has nothing to do with us. It's all God. And as we grow in our faith, we grow in our biblical knowledge. How many of you were Baptists? All right. I mean, so many of us, these Presbyterian churches, we we rely on Baptists to get people saved, and then we educate them into the deep truths of the Bible. That's just the way it works. I was a Baptist. So um, as you grow in your faith, you can't help but eventually start realizing God is sovereign. And that sovereignty as eternal creator extends to our salvation. But all we can do is pray for them and teach, teach, preach, proclaim the sovereignty of God and pray for them. All right. Anything else before we go? All right. Jonathan, will you pray for us?